Hello, everyone, and welcome to Functional Fertility, the podcast designed to demystify your hormones, up-level your lifestyle, and supercharge your fertility potential. I'm your host, Dr. Kalia Waddles, and today we are restoring fertility and recovering your period with my wonderful guest, fertility nutrition expert, Lindsay Lesson. Lindsay is a registered dietitian who specializes in disordered eating and infertility. She has both personal and professional experience with hypothalamic amenorrhea, or period loss related to overexercise or undereating. Her experience led her to become passionate about educating and empowering others to advocate for their health and take charge of their fertility through proper nutrition. She has helped over 250 women recover cycles and restore their fertility naturally. We're so fortunate to have her on the show. Welcome, Lindsay. Thank you so much for having me. I'm super excited to be here. I have been looking forward to getting your brain insight on this topic because I love all the education you put out around period recovery and I think just really approachable steps to recovering your period, things that don't feel intimidating. I know you your personal experience really comes into play, so it's just super approachable and I really admire how you, uh, you know, work with clients on this topic that I think can be emotionally charged. It can be layers on layers of what we've been trained in as women in our culture. So I'm just really glad that you're here. We know you specialize in period recovery, and that means you help patients to find freedom with their food, with their exercise, and how good we all want to have freedom in those things. What are some of the most common causes you see in your patient population of a period that has gone missing? Yeah. So, you know, you have to bring in the idea of PCOS because I know that that does happen. And some people have irregular periods with PCOS and some people have um, no period with PCOS and they can go years without it. Um, That is actually not my wheelhouse. What I usually deal with um, is hypothalamic amenorrhea. And that is when somebody's period completely goes missing. It could be for months. It could be years. If it's like in my case and a lot of the clients that I work with, it might be a decade or more. So basically no period at all. And the root cause of having no period is kind of three things all lumped in together. It is stress, overexercise, and undereating. Yeah. I um, was working in a clinic. I was doing primary care and I was seeing so many patients who they were, um, you know, maybe even teenagers, early 20s, and they were gymnasts. And so many of them were not having a period. And it was really normalized. It was like, well, none of my teammates have their period. It's just a thing. Is that your experience too, that you find, especially in certain populations like athletes, that we just completely normalize having no period? Yeah, it gets normalized a lot, especially in, I think we're getting a little bit better, but yes, in particular in like the college, collegiate or high school, um, you know, area of sports, especially if it is something like gym, something like cheering, dancing, um, you know, like pole vaulting, like anything where there is like a body size component to the sport. Um, it's very common. However, in working with so many women, I do see it in a lot of athletes and it's not always just those aesthetic sports. Um, But you think about the level that like a division one athlete trains at, it's like somebody could unknowingly be under fueling and overstressing their body 
as it's kind of part of their sport. So yes, we do see that a lot. We do hear from a lot of coaches, um, sometimes even from doctors, oh, well, you aren't getting your period because you're so active. Like this isn't a big deal. You know, like when you stop your sport, your period will come back, okay, just kind of like that mentality. Right. And even outside of the elite athlete demographic, I'm even thinking about patients I've seen who, um, for example, someone who taught cycling classes all day, and that's just what she did for a living. And so finding that energy balance was really hard. So I think this can come up in a lot of different patient presentations, right? Definitely. And I work probably more frequently with like more of our recreational exercisers, your spin instructors, your orange theory fitness instructors at 45, all of those things, because fitness is such a part of their lifestyle. Um, they may not necessarily understand the impact that over exercise can have on their hormones. Absolutely. I love to collect listener questions when I know that I'm having experts on the show. And a question came in that I thought would be perfect to ask you because I imagine a lot of people have this question. So this listener asked, is it true that you have to be underweight to have hypothalamic amenorrhea? Yeah, so no. And this is probably one of the biggest knowledge gaps I think there is in between like kind of our traditional uh, medicine, Western medicine community um, and, and people getting this diagnosis is a lot of doctors, Western medicine doctors are going to school and thinking about this textbook picture of what hypothalamic amenorrhea looks like. And they're thinking that it is a thin athletic woman with an eating disorder. And that is not the case. So really any person could develop this condition, um, depending upon what all is going on. Again, if somebody's got like the perfect storm of um, being in a really stressful job or stressful relationship and with dealing with that stress, one of the coping mechanisms they have is to start running. And so they start running, you know, three to five miles a week and that turns into 10 or 20 miles a week. And now they're marathon training. And with all of this, they're either not keeping up with the fueling, they're just not intentional about it, or they also turn to eating super healthy. And I'm kind of using air quotes if you're not using the uh, video here, but they, they turn to like controlling their food, like counting their calories or their macros or getting very obsessed with like clean eating, almost like that orthorexia type thing. Um, and so someone's body size doesn't really matter, right? It's those stressful conditions that can trigger period loss with HA. That makes so much sense and I think is really helpful and helps helps patients to advocate for themselves when their period is missing. They're trying to work for with their practitioner. And of course, like you said, when your period is irregular or missing for months at a time, it could be PCOS, it could be HA, it could be a number of things. And so we we have to sometimes, I think, push our practitioners to keep asking questions and uh investigating and remaining curious. So I think that's super helpful. And you reminded me, um, I, I was going through some boxes that we had in our shop and I found a teen magazine that I have been holding on to since 1997. It's like such a relic from the past. And looking at the diet and exercise advice in these magazines, it's all about calorie counting and portioning. And no wonder that now we're all in our mid thirties and still holding on to that mentality. It's what we were trained to do. Exactly. Yes. Mm. Yes. Uh, looking at those late 90s advice, and I think even now with education, educators like you 
showing us how we can fuel our bodies, the mindset. The mindset is really hard to shift. And you you love to talk about this relationship between exercise and your period and fertility. So how can we tell if we're exercising too much? I'm sure there's some individuality here. So we're all maybe, I don't know, have a different threshold for how much exercise we can tolerate. It probably goes to how much our caloric intake is in combination. How can we do a little self-inventory? Yeah. So I always tell people that it kind of comes down to like two main things. The first one is genetics. So it's really interesting. We've done some retrospective studies in people that experience both primary amenorrhea, meaning they like just never start their period or they don't start their period until they're like 19 or 20. Um, and with people who develop amenorrhea for, for like secondary forms. And there have been genes that have been identified that um, can be contributing factors, right? So I always like to remind people that like some people, just like you talk, you know, on your podcast about like some people are more sensitive to endocrine disruptors, right? Some people are more sensitive under stressful conditions to lose their period or to experience ovulatory dysfunction. So like some of this, if you're listening and you're like, oh my gosh, this is me. Some of this is not your fault, right? This is just your genetic makeup. Um, but the other thing that it comes down to is fueling, right? So we all know marathon runners, people who run um, Ironman races, all the things who don't experience period issues and don't experience fertility issues as a result. Um, and that could be their genes, but it could also be their fueling. So what we often see with HA is it's not so much that the exercise is the issue, but rather Either somebody is exercising so intensely or they're doing so much exercise that it is just very hard to keep up with proper fueling. Um, nutrient timing matters there too. Um, but in particular, I mean, you think about it, if somebody is running seven to 10 miles a day, you would also have to be pretty diligent about keeping up with the caloric demand of the sport, not to mention maybe you are a doctor and you're doing rounds and you're on your feet all day. Right. So I think that, you know, kind of a combination of if you're a millennial, <laughs> you grew up with 17 magazine nutrition advice and you're counting calories and then you're expending X, um, people just aren't fully aware. And so, you know, the genes, something that we can't control, we can't change. Um, but the fueling is something that really we can take control of and we can um, bring that into the equation when we talk about kind of correcting and healing from this position. Mm hmm. It just occurred to me that maybe I should bring in a little bit of background knowledge about why it's important to even have a regular period because I've I've worked with especially younger women who they're not trying to get pregnant right now. And so not having their period can almost be a relief. Like, okay, great. Something I don't have to think about. I don't have to worry about. I don't have to buy period products. Will you just give us a little bit of a reminder of why we might want to consider having a regular period, even if we don't want to get pregnant soon. Yeah. And I think that this is such an important part because there might be people listening who don't want to start their families for 10 years, or maybe they've already completed their family. Right. So, um, yeah, I mean, the rise and fall of estrogen and progesterone is just so important for women's mood balance, right? Like, 
so many people talk about going on the pill and feeling a certain way. And, you know, when it's not the natural cycle of your hormones, you need to understand that like it is going to have a different impact on your body and the way that you feel. Some big ones that come up in research when someone has no period is um, bone loss. So when somebody doesn't have adequate levels of estrogen, their um, osteoclast, the, um, you know, the cells that are responsible for kind of bone maintenance, um, basically like bone turnover is is ramped up and bone building is halted. So it's kind of like this double whammy. We're not able to properly build bone and they're signaling that we need to continue to, um, you know, take away from what's already there. And a lot of times the arguments is, oh, well, I'm so active. It shouldn't matter. Well, no, you know, you know, your activity level, even if you're on the pill and you're getting minor doses of estrogen, um, synthetic estrogen, the newer research is showing that that really doesn't help. And I see this in my practice. I have women in their early thirties come to me with osteoporosis because they haven't had periods and nobody's really said anything about it. So bone health is a biggie. Um, something that's coming up more recently in research is heart health. So from the nurses health study, um, over 82,000 women, they have been able to kind of look back at this information and women with, um, missing and irregular periods actually have a, bigger risk factor for developing cardiovascular disease. And the kind of the thought process there is estrogen can have a impact on how well our blood vessels kind of expand and dilate. And without adequate levels of estrogen, they get stiffer. And so our heart is having to work harder to pump blood to our muscles and vital organs. And over time, um, that can lead to um, it can lead to high blood pressure. We also too typically see a lot of um, high cholesterol in people who don't have periods and have really low estrogen. Um, so lots of kind of predisposing factors there for heart health, um, bone health. And then I think the big one that people don't really talk about a whole lot is, is just mood and mood balance. So a lot of people without periods, because they, a lot of it, you know, they're not having hormones, they're not having progesterone, it can impact their mood. So women with HA are at higher risk for anxiety, depression. Um, another one that's coming up um, that I've kind of been like reading about more and more recently is just the um, impact that estrogen has being protective on our neural synapses and how women with um, chronically low estrogen are at a higher risk for early onset of dementia. I mean, it's really incredible hearing you talk about all of these things because this on paper looks like all of the things we're worried about in a patient who's menopausal. Right. Similar hormonal profile, right? Like very suppressed estrogen. Uh, now we see risks across multiple body systems. You just mentioned our bone health, our cognitive function, our heart health, just our mood stability. So I think it's really worthwhile that we're having these conversations. And I wish it was happening more in the primary care setting, but it's okay. That's why we're here to do what we need to do and spread the word. Sleep is incredibly important for fertility, to keep our hormones healthy, to power up our antioxidant capacity, and to help us deal with inflammation. I find that the uncertainty or anticipation in the preconception timeframe can make us feel a little on edge, and it can be more difficult to find that space for restorative sleep. As a busy mom and business owner, I can sometimes find myself feeling wired but tired at the end of the day and just really craving something gentle and effective to help me wind down. I've recently started ending my day with sleep and relaxation support by Needed. This is a delicious chamomile-infused powder in a super convenient packet that you just mix into water. 
I've been mixing mine with warm water for a really cozy and nourishing ritual before bed. The sleep and relaxation support is like a slightly sweet chamomile tea, but it has no added sugar. It's sweetened only with monk fruit. It gives me a boost of calming ingredients like magnesium, glycine, and L-theanine to promote optimal sleep quality and relaxation. I'm also so grateful to finally have a product that's safe for pregnancy and breastfeeding. Most sleep aids are contraindicated for pregnant and nursing mamas, and we know how important sleep can be during these stages of life too. If you're ready to relax safely and deliciously with needed sleep and relaxation support, head over to thisisneeded.com and use code FUNCTIONALFERTILITY for 20% off your first month of needed products. That's thisisneeded.com and use code FUNCTIONALFERTILITY for 20% off your first month of needed products. So taking this back to exercise, because I think it's listeners are probably thinking about their own exercise routine and how that's fitting in with their goals and needs. When I'm working with um, patients in the office and I'm putting together an exercise recommendation, I do it in the structure of a fit prescription, which is frequency, intensity, time, and type. And I'm wondering how you're tailoring some of these recommendations for clients who are really working to recover their period. Yes. Yes. And I love this. And I do the same. Um, and I'll lead with, you know, I, when I'm working with a client, I always meet them where they're at. Right. So I'm going to give you guys like the bold standard about what I recommend, because this is what I see work in my practice for bringing periods back relatively quickly, like within a number of weeks to months, not like years. Um, and that is to keep your heart rate below 120 beats per minute. So whatever exercise you're doing, and that's going to rule out a lot of exercise that I think a lot of people dealing with HA really like to do. So this probably isn't everyone's favorite information, but if somebody's on a healing journey trying to get their period back, especially if fertility is in mind, this would be my recommendation is to keep your heart rate below 120 beats per minute um, to not exercise longer than an hour a day. So even if you're doing, you know, mat Pilates or yoga or walking around your neighborhood, which I do recommend and I think is a really wonderful way to lower stress and get some blood flow going, um, but to not do that for an hour a day, right? So even if we're keeping our heart rate low, but we're doing a Pilates class and a yoga class, and then we're going on a five mile hike, like, oh my gosh, well, I'm doing low intensity exercise. You can overdo it there too. So kind of reining it in no longer than an hour a day. And then I also really encourage people to take at least one to two full rest days where they're not engaging in any purposeful exercise. That doesn't mean that you can't walk with a friend to go get coffee. That doesn't mean that you can't go shopping with somebody. But what it does mean is that you are not setting your alarm for 5 a.m. and waking up and going on that walk because you feel like you have to do that. And I think that sometimes breaking that cycle of being so dependent upon exercise can be so important for someone's stress level, because what it forces you to do is to reach into your, your tool belt. And instead of always going to exercise, it helps you to think about meditation, think about social connection, think about journaling, lots of other ways that we can mindfully manage stress that don't just involve exercise. That is really, really helpful and specific, which is what I love to hear. But one thing you said I really struck me, um, you know, setting the alarm at five o'clock to get out there because you have to. And I relate to that feeling. And I think so many people have felt that like I have to exercise or something bad is going to happen. Like I'm going to gain five pounds today or, you know. We, we get in this cycle where it seems scary to not do what's our routine. Yeah, for sure. But like you said, we have many other modifiable lifestyle factors and it 
it's an opportunity to engage in some of those other things, right? And I'm thinking about I use a tool called the functional medicine matrix. And at the bottom of that is our modifiable lifestyle factors. It's sleep, exercise, our relationships, stress management, nutrition, and you have to really focus on all of them. And so I think many of us, we choose the one that feels mm, most important to us. So maybe we're exercising a lot, but we're not focusing on our relationships and we're not calling in our, you know, meditation or imagery. We're not focusing on our sleep quality. And so, as you said, we're shifting the emphasis away from one single factor. And that's an invitation to engage with the others. Yeah. And I also think that there are a lot of people who experience HA that are exercising on, you know, five to six hours of sleep. And so if we could sleep in, prioritize eight hours of sleep and skip a workout every once in a while, that's kind of like a double whammy on improving your fertility. You're lowering your cortisol because you're not engaging in so much exercise and you're sleeping. Like how wonderful is that? Um, so I always like to remind people too, that like our foundation is going to be food and exercise for healing HA. But as we move up the pyramid, it is very holistic and we are going to be talking about sleep and we are going to be talking about, um, additional stressors that are coming into your life that we can maybe not completely eliminate, but we can talk through ways that we can um, not get so stressed out or ways that we can manage our stress. Totally. I'm wondering if this question, I'm picturing myself, if I were, if I were a client of yours and you're, if I was really attached to my exercise and you're saying, okay, we need to make some modifications here. I know that I would be doing this internal bargaining where I would say, okay, I'm going to keep my exercise. Tell me how much more I need to eat to be able to do this. Like, does that come up and how do you handle that? All the time, all the time, all the time. And unfortunately, most people, I don't want to speak for every single individual who has had this condition, but unfortunately, most people do have to do both. They cannot outbeat their caloric expenditure through exercise. And the reason for that is, is that there's been internal damage to your body, right? It's been through some trauma, if you will. And so in order to get the brain and ovaries communicating again, to get your wake up your hypothalamus, if you will, um, we kind of have to be very specific and very intentional and very careful. Um, and so I've seen a lot of women work with really great people who encourage them to eat well, like sports dietitians, like they will get their food intake up and they will get their food on point and they will put on some body fat, which is super important for estrogen levels. Um, but they still won't see periods or they'll see their periods return, but they're having, you know, 90 day cycles and they're not ovulating or their luteal phase is four to five days. And they're just still overstressing their bodies. And so it's really important as you're healing HA that you kind of approach it like any other injury, right? Like if you were to have a stress fracture or torn ACL, you are going to spend some time resting, right? Resting and nourishing. And then as that injury improves, you can start slowly working your way back into gentle movement and training and potentially, you know, coming back even stronger, faster than you ever were. But in order for the injury to heal properly, there is a protocol that we really need to follow. And it needs to be very conservative, specific, and um, very, you know, a specific way. And so if you cut corners, unfortunately, that's usually where we start to see some of those cycle irregularities and fertility issues happen even after you get your period back. 
All right. So now we're, we've agreed we're going to decrease our exercise. We're going to focus on the nutrition part. What are some of the recommendations you're making in terms of um, supporting your energy balance with foods? What's coming up most often in your treatment plans nutritionally? Yeah. So a big area that I see people kind of doing it wrong or like when people come into my program, I'm like, okay, this is what we have to change is fasting and not eating enough carbohydrates. So you know, fasting is very popular. Some people see, you know, some health benefits for doing that. Um, for some women, it is a recipe for disaster for your hormones. And so if somebody is waiting to eat until 11 o'clock, what we start to do is just like gradually shift that first meal up and trying to get people to eat within an hour or so of waking is what I typically recommend. And that doesn't mean like sit down and have this like big five star breakfast, right? It might simply mean, you know, if you're having your coffee, you enjoy that with an energy bite. Maybe you're putting some whole milk or some collagen in your coffee to have with your energy bite, right? Just getting your body some fuel in the morning so that you're not going, you know, nine hours, nine waking hours fasted. Um, so that's a big one. The other one too, is it's, it's honestly just adding stuff back in. Right. So like, I don't want people to do like a total overhaul of their diet, but if like your lunch is lean protein and veggies, let's get some fat in there. Let's add in some carbohydrates. Can we do a sweet potato? Can we do some quinoa? Can we add in some pasta? A lot of women have a hard time with including carbohydrates in their diet because they're just so demonized, um, in diet culture or depending upon, you know, what kind Kind of um, eating plan or um, nutrition professional that they're kind of, you know, following or listening to carbs can be really demonized. And while, you know, making swaps with carbohydrates can be healthy for some conditions, especially if there is some insulin resistance going on, you need to recognize that if you have HA, that's not you. And your issue with hormones is the fact that you're probably not eating enough carbohydrates. And so adding those things back in can be really, really beneficial in reestablishing that communication between the brain and the ovaries, helping the body to have, you know, signaling that blood sugar levels are stable. We're bringing our insulin up. We're bringing our glucose up. Okay. Like we have enough energy and we can finally start to turn this body system that isn't essential for life, but is essential for making a new life. We can start turning that system back on and we can start reestablishing communication and making hormones and getting the body ovulating. Mm -hmm. So it sounds like it's a combination of uh, increasing caloric density, but also focusing on some specific macronutrients as well. Yeah, definitely. Because I, I see a lot of people just kind of try to play the calories game. Um, and then they're increasing their food intake and they're eating more fat, they're eating more protein, they're eating more vegetables. And that's awesome. Like that's a really good stepping stone, but the carbohydrates are actually super important again for kind of that blood sugar balance and proper hormonal signaling. Mm -hmm. I have found, and I think I've experienced this myself at times when going through periods of life that have been more restrictive, you kind of lose your hunger cues, or maybe you tell yourself that you're not hungry. Do you find when you're working with patients that as you're making these steps towards a healthier energy balance, that they start to get more in touch with their, with their hunger cues, their, their true hunger cues? A hundred percent. And what you just said, it's both, right? It's both that as you aren't taking on enough food, your metabolism slows down and adapts to X, whatever you're giving yourself. So that definitely happens. Um, and 
if somebody is dealing with AHA, a lot of times, not all the time, but a lot of times they are on sort of this disordered eating spectrum. That absolutely does not mean that they have a full-blown eating disorder. Um, but what I often see is people get in, in this, you know, you kind of touched on this and I definitely, you know, did this as well, is you get really good at ignoring hunger, right? Oh, like I feel a little bit hungry, but I'm just going to have a glass of water or, oh my gosh, how could I possibly be hungry? I just ate. Um, and just getting really, really good at getting really busy um, or killing your appetite with coffee. I see that a lot, chewing gum. Like um, I think also too, you know, just to bring it back to 17 magazine, you know, 10 tips to, you know, trick your appetite or to stop feeling so hungry all the time. Like we're told all these messages that we can't trust our bodies. And so we follow that advice and we get out of touch with what our bodies are telling us. And so, yes, learning to nourish your body properly um, can help people get back in touch with like what our bodies are actually telling us to do. Hmm. How empowering that these, this information that is inherently available to us at all times that we can tap into that. I think that's so important. Now, as we're thinking about um, information gathering, I recently read a post that you made on your social media, and it was about the use of fitness trackers. And it really got me thinking about uh, everyone I know has an Apple watch, an aura ring, all kinds of wearables that are constantly reporting to us about our activity level and how many calories we've burned. And will you give us a little bit of your insight about how we might engage with our trackers in a healthy way when we're trying to get our period back? Yeah. So, I mean, I love trackers, right? Like I wear a temp drop, I wear an Apple watch, and I think that they have so much valuable information and I think there's such thing as too much information, especially when somebody is using a fitness tracker that is encouraging them to move more when the goal for getting your period back and getting your body to a place of fertility is actually to rest more. So if you have outside information that is prompting you to hit X number of steps per day, when really the goal is for you to conserve energy, rest your body and focus on restoration, it can be helpful to like take a little break from your trackers. Now that doesn't mean that like you can't ever use these things again, but I think you need to know yourself best. And if your tracker is triggering you to do more movement than what's natural for you, or you feel guilty if you didn't close all your rings or hit X number of steps per day, you know, that could be a sign that we need to kind of reevaluate whether or not this tracker is helpful or healthy for you at this point in time. Yeah, I think that's really approachable because I mean, we all, even on your iPhone, you'll get the notification like only 20 minutes of brisk walking and you can reach your goal today. And it's like, well, what if I already did a class like you said, and now I'm trying to rest for the rest of the day, but now I feel like the phone is being judgy and I have to close my ring. For sure. And the boundary also might look like like turning those notifications off, right? Like if you are a mom and you need your watch on for text message notifications, maybe the next step for you isn't necessarily to take it off, but to rather, you know, on the back end, go through your settings and say, I don't want to be notified at 945 at night that a 20 minute brisk walk could allow me to close my rings. Like we don't need all that information. Exactly. I think in all of this conversation, the kind of the elephant in the room is 
the emotions that so many of us have attached to gaining weight and like our body habitus and what that feels like and looks like. And I imagine this is coming up all the time because you have to have these conversations. Like sometimes it's perfectly appropriate for your clients to gain weight. That's part of the treatment. So how do you talk? How do you talk in the office or when you're working one-on-one about acknowledging those emotions that might surface and carving a path forward that's going to be supportive of our mental health? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think there just needs to be a lot of grace um, and honest conversations. Um, You know, first of all, I never want anyone to feel guilty that they have gotten themselves where they are or to feel guilty that they're afraid to gain weight because most individuals do have some level of fat phobia. Um, we are taught from a very young age that thin is good and fat is bad, right? So let's just all recognize that everybody has somewhat of these similar emotions and you're not a bad person for feeling that way. And, and your body size that it's at not getting a period, not being able to ovulate and make a baby is not a healthy size for you. And that doesn't matter what size Kalia is, right? Like, or what size Lindsay is. Like, we are all genetically designed to be different body shapes and sizes. And if you have dieted your way down to a certain size, or you're continuing to exercise a certain way to keep your body a size that isn't healthy for you, if your true end goal is health, then let's focus on health and let's take body size out of the equation. And that's something that we focus on a lot in my practice is if someone's weighing themselves regularly, can we put the scale away? Or if we're weighing every single day, can we just weigh once a week? So kind of just trying to take this emphasis off of body size, moving away from numbers. Um, As my clients are going through the recovery process, we talk a lot about um, mantras, the way that we speak to each other, trying to, um, you know, quiet down any sort of noise we have in our heads about the way that we're perceiving our bodies or speaking to ourselves, um, limiting triggers. So cutting down on body checking opportunities for comparison. I always encourage my clients to do like a big social media cleanse. If you think about it, if you're spending, you know, an hour or two a day scrolling social media and your entire feed is fitness models or influencers or women that are smaller than you, it's going to be really hard to look in the mirror and be like, I am enough or I look a certain way or this is okay if you're constantly comparing. So Comparison is human nature. Everyone does it. Um, But you do have to kind of take a step back and think about how are these habits impacting me and my ability to be healthy, to be fertile Um, and, you know, recognizing that where we are the cards that we've been dealt, recognizing that there is an answer and you choosing to put on some weight, um, you choosing to nourish your body is getting your hormones healthy probably going to allow you to gain parts of your life back that maybe you didn't even realize you were missing. You know, a lot of the clients that I work with, like don't even have dinner with their significant others because they feel like they have to have the specific, super healthy, super clean meal. Um, It can really limit them on being able to be social and going out and enjoying things. And then we think about 
as you become a mom, there are just so many fun opportunities to enjoy food with your kids. And if you have all these rules and restrictions, um, it can really hold you back from just engaging and living a full life. And so even though you might have to gain a certain amount of weight to be able to get your period back, you know, really just flipping the script and thinking about what am I gaining here? I'm gaining the ability to be able to grow and carry a baby. I am being able to heal some of my relationships, take some stress off my plate. Um, so that's really what we focus on is, you know, trying to recognize that, yes, it's hard and that's okay. And if the end goal is health here, then it shouldn't be about staying a certain size that isn't healthy for that individual. Wow. That approach felt so comforting and nourishing to me. One of my university professors was a midwife, and I've talked about this before when we were in our maternity and pediatrics class, she said, when you are trying to conceive, you have to start from a place of fullness. You have to have so much abundance that you have overflow that then you can give to this person. And I think that's such a helpful visual in this scenario of like, how can I cultivate such abundance in my health that I have extra? And that's what this is really about. Right. Right. I love that too. Well, the other thing that was coming up for me is uh, how important it is to work with someone like you when you're seeking to get your period back, because there are so many layers that we're unpacking and there's this very specific nutrition and exercise recommendation. But I think also that mental, emotional, spiritual piece that can come up. So having your having your care team and and having those be people who are really supportive of those aspects of your health, your health determinants, I think is so vital. Yes, definitely. And I'll also say too, that I have seen the value of community be incredibly important and just not feeling isolated during this healing journey and connecting with other people. And I'm sure you hear that a lot too, Kalia, like in the fertility space, the value of community and somebody that can just be there with you and like nod their head and be like, oh my gosh, me too. I thought I was the only one. There's so much power in having that human connection. A hundred percent agree. There's actually research that behavior change happens in community. And so I think that's really powerful in this situation and many others, maybe everything. Um, Lindsay, I want to make sure that I ask you about timeline because I know all of our listeners who are struggling with this, they're listening, thinking, okay, doing the math, how long is this going to take me? And I want, I need to get on a plan. So in your experience, if someone goes all in on all of these life lifestyle changes, you mentioned there's probably a range, but what's a typical timeline where you are seeing period recovery? Yeah. Yeah. I always like to default back to eight weeks. So average recovery time for my clients following my method is about seven and a half weeks. Um, that being said with an average, like there are going to be people who fall on both sides of that, right? There's going to be people who get their period back in less than a month. I have, um, you know, kind of seen this pattern in my practice that I refer to as my fast responders, people's bodies <laughs> just wake up and they're like, oh my gosh, this is what I needed. I'm going to ovulate. And here we are. We have a period back in less than a month. Um, and then there's going to be people who take a little bit longer and it's not necessarily that they're doing anything wrong. It's just that we have to recognize that healing takes time, right? There could be five, 10, 15 years of damage 
physically and mentally that can take someone a little bit longer to respond and or be able to really, you know, kind of reconcile and put things into practice as they are working through the fat phobia, the, you know, kind of mourning of loss of a smaller body or the what feels like stripping of identity if somebody isn't allowed to, you know, run for eight weeks, if you will. Um, but two to three months is, is a very realistic recovery time if somebody is fully focused. If someone is dealing with an eating disorder, or if someone is doing some of the bargaining of, okay, like I'll do this, but I'm not giving up this. Um, you can expect a longer, you know, six to 12 month recovery time. So I don't want to say like you get what you put in, but it can be relatively quick for people who are highly motivated and have the right level of support for really putting the things into place. I mean, eight weeks, that's astounding. That's super fast, especially if you think I haven't had my period for five years and now I'm eight weeks away from having a cycle. That's actually incredible. Well, and I always tell people that that's the silver lining of HA different than other fertility issues, right? When we're talking about, I've heard on your podcast, people dealing with like egg quality issues. And you talk about like a three to six month timeline just to get, you know, the, the body, you know, healthy enough. And, and so like when we put things in perspective, the plan for being able to get your period back and get pregnant can happen very quickly. It's all of those like physical and emotional barriers that can be, that can cause people to have longer recovery times. But yes, with the right level of support um, and guidance and direction, it's definitely possible. I always tell people, you know, three months is a really good timeline to have in your head if you are motivated and doing what you need to be doing. That is so encouraging. I just think that that's, I mean, like you said, there's so many fertility issues where I need several months to get this in order. So that was a, a message of hope, I think, which is exactly where I love to end up at the end of an episode. And I always like to close with something fun. And so, of course, naturally, I had a food-related fun challenge for you at our at the close of our episode. So imagine you're in your kitchen. I am hoping that you will build for us the perfect period recovery lunch. Yes, yes. And I love this question. And, you know, meal planning is something I do with my clients. And I even like have a free download of like a sample period recovery meal plan if anyone's just like, oh my gosh, where do I even start? Um, So I'm building the perfect period recovery lunch. I am thinking a bowl, right? So I know so often people are like, let's do a salad. I like to distinguish between having a salad and a bowl because we want some carbs, right? Um, And I think I would put some sweet potatoes in this bowl. I would also choose a grain. You could pick your poison here. It could be a quinoa. It could be a rice. It could be a pasta. Um, But I would do like two sources of carbohydrates. So like a potato, sweet potato and a quinoa. Um, I might also toss in two sources of fat. So um, we can do some greens, maybe some spinach. We could also toss in an avocado and then we could toss it all in olive oil and then probably top it off. I'm a big texture person with some crunch. So let's do like some walnuts and maybe also some cranberries, um, feta cheese, if you tolerate dairy. And I think that would be, I'm like getting hungry. I think that could be a fantastic. That's a fantastic lunch. In my house, we call that things in a bowl with a sauce, which is 
I love it. So good for meal prepping too, right? You have all of your ingredients and then you could make endless bowl combinations. Yes. Yes. And so it keeps it fun and fresh and not boring. And the more that you trade stuff out and do different variety, the more variety of nutrients you're getting. So it's like a win-win. Love that for us. Lindsay, tell our listeners where they can find you. Yeah. So I'm probably most active on Instagram at food.freedom.fertility. But if anyone is just wanting to know a little bit more about um, HA and HA recovery, or they're looking for like actual resources, they can go to my website. Um, Again, I have my free downloadable period recovery meal plan, and you can get that at www.foodfreedomandfertility.com. So wonderful to have you. Thank you so much, Lindsay, for sharing all of these insights with us today. I think our listeners will really appreciate all of these clinical pearls that you have developed over the years. So thank you so very much for your time. Yes. Thanks for having me again. This was fun. Listeners, it's always a joy. Thank you for being with us. And to our show's producer, Paola Martini, so much gratitude. We'll see you all next time. Did you love this episode and want to hear more? Head over to drkaliawaddles.com slash podcast, where you can find more episodes on all things fertility.